All right. So this is Kevin Brittingham. This is the uh, Q&S podcast, the official Q podcast. Um, I don't know what number this is. I'm losing track, and, and I guess I probably don't really care. But um, this is Mike Allen of Nevesky. Uh, we spoke to Lorena um, Nevesky last week, I think. And, Mike, you're the uh, – how are you doing? Doing good. Appreciate you having me on. Good. Oh, well, thanks for the time. We'll see if, if this, um, how interesting this is or anybody listens to it. Um, but we should cover some fun stuff. But your your position at Nevesky is what currently? I'm the president and chief marketing officer. Great. Well, I know the marketing officer thing makes a lot of sense. Um, so, well, yeah, anyway. The president part, the president part came about, I don't know, eight months or a year after I'd already started at Nevesky. So got hired to do marketing and then had some responsibilities added as needed. So with a small company, as you know, you end up wearing a lot of different hats. So it's not uncommon at all. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I know I'm our president and CEO, and I probably have no business being either of those. That wasn't a... That wasn't a criticism of you, but yeah, in small companies, oh, that's no. part of what I love is it, it, it's really, you know, um, the the DNA of the company seemed in a small company to be established by everyone participating, uh, being passionate about it, and you just end up wearing a lot of hats. So, yeah, I totally get it. Yeah, um, it's, not like, it's not like I have a desk that has, you know, my name and president underneath it or anything like that. I actually don't even have an office. I just work wherever there's a table. So it's kind of a, you know, internally, it's probably less impressive being president than it is kind of on a business card or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember when, um, after Remington had bought my company and they gave me a title, um, and I was the president of Advanced Armament, which, you know, I was before I sold the company. And they didn't really absorb us. They just kind of bought us. And we were, for the first year or two, we were really kind of an island. They didn't – we didn't need much from them, and they didn't get involved in our business. We were doing well and growing. But uh, the point of this is we get to SHOT Show just a few months after they bought the company. And the guy in charge of the ammo, Remington's ammo facility, um, I meet him. And the first thing he says to me, he says, do you have a card? And I said, yeah, yeah, I just got some and handed it to him. And all he did is he looked at it. And he's probably a 55-year-old, like, disgruntled, just a bastard of a man. And he says, <laughs> president, huh? He says, I'm still a director. You're not shit at this place unless you're a VP or higher. And it was just I remember it was so shocking to me that he would be, you know, I was so excited about the possibilities at Remington and what the potential we could do and how this guy gave no shits about anything except a fucking title on his card. Because he thought yeah. some respect. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest problems. I, I worked for, you know, a billion-dollar company before the gun industry, and it was publicly traded and, and – titles and you know that sort of thing mean a lot to people in those type of corporations where i feel more at home in the small business where you just you're just there to win like you you're you're there to work hard and and have something cool happen but you you don't get caught up on titles or 
what your position is or, you know, all that stuff. So, it's, I don't know, it's been fun kind of over my career to see the difference between those two mindsets. I feel like the work that I've been able to be a part of in a small business sense has been far more impactful than what I did at a billion-dollar company. Yeah, it's easy to get lost. Well, will you share um, your background before we get into other things? Um, outside of the industry, um, you, you know, the work you did um, before you got in the firearms industry and then how you got in the firearms industry, if you don't mind, and, uh, yeah. you know, the path that led you to where you are now. Yeah, for sure. So previous to the firearms industry, I worked in the skateboard, snowboard uh, industry for – I don't know, over 15 years, uh, the last seven of it being at DC Shoes, and I was the global marketing director there. I worked really close with the guy who started the company, and eventually he uh, he moved to Park City, Utah, and so I was traveling to Utah quite a bit, and eventually DC asked me to move up here, and um, so I wasn't... I, like it'd be easier accessed, you know, for what we're trying to do. And so, yeah, I, I moved up here. I think the second day I was in town, I went and got my Utah driver's license from California, <clears throat> went to a gun shop, you know, kind of saw the same stuff at every gun shop until I got to the back and there was machine guns and silencers and SBRs and all these like really, really cool things growing up in San Diego. I never was able to have access to. So, <clears throat> with my freshly printed Utah driver's license, I bought some silencers and bought um, some SBRs, like, just right off the bat. It was the, for me, the coolest part about moving to Utah was having all these individual freedoms I never really had before. So I got in, um, <clears throat> ended up posting some photos on Instagram and not that I have, like, a giant following or anything, but somehow a guy that worked at Silencer Co. followed me on Instagram and messaged me and said, hey, you should come on a tour. We're local. Because I ended up buying um, – I, I bought a couple AAC cans and I bought a couple Silencer Co. cans. And the so I, I ended up going on a tour um, and I met everyone over there. They offered me a job that same day, and I – politely declined because I was pretty stoked on what I was doing at DC Shoes and working on some really big projects and um, kind of traveling the world doing so. But I don't know, probably six, eight months later, uh, the landscape at DC and, and the action sports industry in general changed quite a bit and necessitated me not wanting to go back to California and, and rejoin the company and actually I quit without sort of a plan. And probably, I don't know, a couple of days, a few days later, um, Silent Scrub hit me up and offered me a job and I started like the next Monday. So that was kind of my first foot into the gun world was through the uh, through Silent Co. Yeah, well, well, let me stop you right there. So um, did – because so, I remember, of course, when Silence Coast started, because I was around 
you know, 10 or 12 years before that or, or more, maybe, I don't know. But um, I remember their initial marketing was very clean and nice, but it was very typical. And, you know, it was guys and like, you know, the, the typical tactical stuff with some dark room with some smoke in the background, you know, holding a silencer, co-silencer, which I remember thinking they were doing a nice job, but also thinking how ridiculous it was because, like, I knew there were no military contracts. So, yeah, or, or law enforcement at that point either. Yeah. So, and, um, but is, is now that was original and probably so many people are, are relatively new to this industry, like the last five years, if I don't remember this, but it, it, as far as chronology is concerned, is when you got there, is that when the marketing changed and became like, you know, geared towards younger crowd and, uh, away from the Yeah. And so, I mean, so for me, um, I got to Silencer Co. And, and at the time, there actually were two companies, right? Silencer Co. being the parent company, and then they had SWR that they had acquired uh, some time yeah. before. So they had this, these, these product lines that were uh, essentially competing against each other and had two very different sort of marketing campaigns. And it was just, it was very disjointed. And it was I felt it was pretty disingenuous because of, you know, there wasn't, we didn't have military contracts, and yet a lot of the catalog and collateral that we put out had these guys in multi-cam running around, you know, buildings and stuff, like you said, with smoke. And I, I just felt like at that point in the in the industry, um, it, there there needed to be some education for the public to be like, okay, silencers aren't just for these guys, or like law enforcement, or assassins or whoever else like the public uh deems that to be true so i i wanted to do stuff that was fun that was believable what who would buy silencers you know you want you want that connection to be everyone who's a shooter could buy a silencer not well i don't really wear multi-cam or like breach doors so i don't know if i should get one so i i try to portray you know a younger demographic we didn't put camouflage in any of our stuff. Like, whatever. no one was wearing kit. It was just all about having fun and, you know, using this accessory to, like, better your shooting experience and have more fun with your buddies. I mean, that was kind of, like, the whole behind-the-scenes thing for us. Yeah, that, you know, think, to me, that's how I felt for a long time. But, it, you know, it was different for me because for a long time, you know, probably close to 20 years, I've worked with the military and special operations. And, you know, and that's well documented at this point with advanced armament and then beyond there at SIG and some things we're doing now. But, you know, that made me so proud. And I remember, you know, before Johnny died, we'd have these discussions and he wanted to make stuff to kill terrorists. You know, like that really drove yeah. John in a lot of the personal discussions we would have. You know, like everybody's a real patriot and all. It's very popular. And I get it. And I think most people are genuine. You know, I hate when I see companies try to sort of portray that for profit. But like Johnny at a personal level was very committed to that, though he didn't like to kind of portray that whole tactical side. But, you know, I just remember that's what sold firearms, accessories and firearms for a long, long time. And so that's what totally. people try to portray. But, you, you know, to me, after 10 years of that being my sole focus, 
you know, I start hunting with these guys and they become my friends and I shoot recreationally a lot. And, you know, like I was on a hunt a couple of weekends ago um, with one of the owners of the King Ranch in Texas. And he yeah. didn't own any. He didn't own any silencers, and he's shooting a 300 short mag, and it's so loud, you know, it's just miserable. And then he he hears me shoot a gun with a silencer, you know, a, a 308, and he's like, "Holy shit, that's real quiet." I'm like, "How do you not have a silencer? Like you have your own helicopter and stuff." But yeah. um, and I was, you and know, we're riding Texas. Yeah, yeah, it's bigger than Rhode Island, and we um. You know, so we ride around for three days shooting stuff, and then all he does is use my gun. And we're in this big high rack thing, you know, it's like a real Texas way of hunting, which is so fun. And I was, you know, and yeah. I remember, and I told him, it's like, this makes it a, like going and playing golf with your buddies. Like, we rode around and we shot pigs and stuff for three days. It's like, we can all shoot rifles at the same time with no ear protection. Like, it makes it more social, it makes it more enjoyable, makes me want to shoot more. Um, so yeah, that's really more of my focus too. So, so I just trying to correlate. I understand where you were going with that, and I think it's a great way to try to drive the industry and market. Well, I think even with like Novesti currently, you know, the focus that Johnny had about building a platform that can you know kill terrorists—that's still a major focus for us. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily need to translate in our marketing, you know. And I think. The industry has kind of evolved a little bit in the last, you know, six, seven years to where it's okay to not pretend that you're an army guy, you know, and yeah, and and the guy, the end users who we are seeking, you know, contracts with and actively going after and winning contracts with, I mean, those guys, you talk to them and they want to go, they want to go shoot pigs and go have fun and be social and and so there's like. They're not thinking about running around and kit all day. So, you know, when you have marketing that's geared towards actual consumers that can make your product believable in their mind and relatable and correlatable to their, you know, sensibilities, that's where you actually start making a lot of progress. Well, I I think, you know, on that note, it's kind of like when you meet guys and, you know, you and I both know probably hundreds of guys at this point that are in and, SOCOM or special forces of some, you know, flavor or another. Yeah. But um, and it's true. It's probably the same for companies as it is for those guys. The guys that brag about everything are generally the ones that didn't do as much as the guys that don't really talk about it. And I think company-wise as well, I kind of feel the same way now. I mean, I think you're right. You know, like I love Novesky rifles. I know what goes into them. I know what goes into ours. And I assume – after years of conditioning, when I build a silencer or a product, a gun, whatever it is, this may be a gun or a product that goes on a gun that a guy is, like, depending on, you know, survivability with. Uh, in combat yeah. or whatever, it might actually kill a terrorist. And, you know, I just develop those products and then sell them commercially as well, the ones that translate easily to the commercial market. But I all, you know, I've just, it, it's just been, it's ingrained in me. That, that, I want to be the best. Everything that we do, I want it to be the best. And, um, you know, if you're paying to go on a $15,000 elk hunt, that could be the time of your life. And the equipment needs yeah. to work there, too. Um, 
So I, I think designing, building, the care of making the products, and being a smaller team like Nevesky or like Q is, you know, you get guys that love, live and breathe it, that would work here for free if they didn't have to have money, you know, to feed their kids. Um, they believe in what we're doing because we're not trying to sell the cheapest thing. We're trying to build the best thing that's a good value. But when you get guys that have, I think, and you know, that have this mindset, um, the commercial products are just as important. And when you get companies that actually build stuff for the military, I think oftentimes, you know, that just instantly translates into the culture and into the product, even if it's on the commercial market. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's it's been interesting um, for us, you know, this last year we. We got a couple contracts that, you know, were kind of a big deal for the company. Not, you know, something that's going to be probably in the newspaper or anything or, like, you know, written about. But it's just some meaningful, you know, projects. And and for us, to be able to translate that into a commercial sense and actually be able to have fun and uh, do some sort of irreverent marketing that yeah. people scratch their head for that. But it we don't have to prove that we're good enough to be, you know, in the hands of, you know, forward deployed. The the proof's in the pudding, so to speak, with the with the rifle platform and the way it performs. And it uh it allows us to have some flexibility, I think, marketing wise, to have fun and and you know, Lorena and I always uh you know, it's we we get along really well and we work really well together, uh, but we always, you know, there's a balance of having fun, pushing the envelope of, you know, creative marketing, and yet not being so out there that you kind of offend everyone in the gun industry because they haven't quite caught on yet. But there's there's a balancing act for that, and it's it's been a lot of fun working at Novesky. I think more challenging than anything for me personally was, you know, I got to Soundsco. There wasn't a story. They didn't have a brand identity. They didn't, there wasn't, you know, a story, you know, uh, leader of the company. There wasn't someone like, I, I look at kind of people who I admired when I got into the gun industry. And it was obviously like, for me, it was Novesky and you. And, I remember as I was researching cans to buy, uh, I you guys had the can you and all these other kind of cool ways for people to help understand the legality and accessibility of, of silencer ownership. And it was funny because I, I think for you and I, I didn't meet you until you were at SIG. <coughs> and you know, when I got to sounds because you were the sworn enemy. I mean, everyone was just all about, like, they wanted my focus to be squarely upon AAC and you. And I I thought it to be funny because I had never met you, but they were, like, just really, you know, adamant about, you know, having the crosshairs on you. <laughs> well, and, and, and it's funny. I, I want to say a couple things. First of all, thank you for the. The, the kind words, I, I appreciate it. it means a lot coming from you because what you, you've done, I really respect. And I think anybody that knows me or has paid attention to any of, you know, my professional endeavors, I probably love marketing more than firearms. Um, and, and I had some thoughts about it this morning. I had most of my thoughts like early morning right after REM and like in the shower or whatever. 
But with uh, a and I'll get to that. But you know, the thing about Silencer Co. You, you know, Josh Waldron wanted to be AAC, and he wanted to be me, in my opinion. And um, and I think it was smart business wise because we were, you know, we were the best. Um, and I think this leads me to, to several points. You know, my thoughts this morning were. I admire a lot of things you've done because you're very creative, it seems to me, and you, you take on projects and you kind of have a plan and you map it out. And I feel like I am not professional with marketing. Um, I think um, I'm probably not professional in a lot of ways, whether it's my marketing is generally picking fights, with it, which isn't your type of marketing. But, um, you know, I think silence are fun to watch, like, though, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, it is fun to watch, I think. But, you, you know, I don't do it for the sake of marketing. And I think some of the things Silencer Code didn't like about me, they had a couple of cool products, and then they were getting popular. And it's really because the market was growing so rapidly, and then I got thrown out of advanced garments. So they were in a really good spot. But they were really light engineering-wise, which will lead to another question in a moment. But yeah. when they would produce something that was bullshit, and I don't care who you are, if 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 you are my brother, if you are Josh Waldron, if you are anybody, if you do something in our industry and you portray it or market it as the best from an engineering standpoint or whatever, and it's not, and it's shit, and, and you are lying to people about it, and it offends me, and I will call you out every single time. And yeah. and I will be ruthless about it. And I'm not sure it's very professional, but what it does, it bothers me because it hurts my employees because we're actually putting in the engineering work. But market, and it it's lying and cheating and stealing, and in my opinion, from my sense of morality, where my barometer is with that, to the customers. And it's bullshit, and it, it should be exposed. And the whole idea in our industry that we should, you know, be more – professional or more professional or honorable and you shouldn't call out or compare to other companies bullshit every industry they do that um you know yeah. in a political in a political election you want 51 percent Novesky and q can only sell to 20 25 percent of the customers anyway because of our size which that's not a knock to me that's a great thing because we're more agile we can pay more attention we can put more in quality control we can put more in design you know and um, I'll lost track of that. But uh, no, I I I'm super into that, and, and it's interesting because especially in a silencer or SBR sense, if you're telling someone this is the best engineered blah blah blah, and they get it and it's a piece of crap, I mean they're stuck with that thing. They spent that's know, right 200 bucks on a tax stamp and waited however many months it took during that time period, eight to twelve months. They yeah, waited for this I, thing and it shows up and it blows, it, you know, launches down range or like blows up or whatever else happens. I mean, that's, that's a disingenuine, you know, that's where you get into big trouble and that's where you, I think, start losing market share. And it yeah. sucks because you do it at the expense of a customer rather than just being like, like the, I just love the idea of just get in where you fit in, you know, be realistic with what your capabilities are and, you know, occupy that space to the best of your ability. But when you're making full like, claims, you, you better back it up. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying. That brings me to a couple points. I did a, I did a podcast with Mike Pappas, one of the founders of Silencer Co. last week. 
And, you know, he had a problem with them rushing things to market um, and not being fully tested. And that leads me to something to you. You can answer or not. But how many um, – they had you going after AAC. How many How many silencer co-silencers have you launched downrange in testing or shooting? Um, let's see. I actually was thinking about this the other day because I was talking to some guys at NSW about it. But, uh, I mean, I think, I think I launched probably, well, okay, well, put it a different way. So, cans that the company owned, I launched probably 20 to 25, I would guess. And, Probably personally, you know, I have a couple sakers. I, those I finally got the different mounts for it from Dead Air, so they work good. But yeah, yeah, those things would launch from time to time as well. But miraculously, I never got baffle strike in in mine and cap ones. But whatever. So yeah, they those cans, especially the early versions, they either like to stick or they like to launch and. I was doing sport range day, and nothing is worse than when you're working for a silencer manufacturer and you're at a dealer-driven, you know, range day, and they have to call the line cold so you can go retrieve your can. And I had to do yeah. it twice at an sport show, and it was probably oh. one of the more embarrassing things I've ever had to do, where I felt personally like, I had nothing to do with the engineering. I had nothing to do with any of it other than I was the guy that had to walk down and pick it up. And I was, I felt like the whole thing, you know, came around, crumbled around me and people were laughing and I'm just like, holy crap, this is the worst, worst of the worst. Yeah, I, I've been at, uh, and I don't go to a lot of that stuff, but I've been at two shows where Silencer Co. Silencer's launched. You know, it's funny because I, I heard a silencer manufacturer mock me the other day for not having a mechanical engineering degree. And, you know, I listened to an interview with Eugene Stoner, and then Trey brought it up on uh, Trey Knight on a podcast I did with him as well. Um, Eugene Stoner didn't have a mechanical engineering degree. And I would say he's probably the second greatest designer in the history of our industry, um, second to John Browning. And... You know, he said later in his life in an interview, I think to Trey, that he was glad he never got one because as he got older and he really understood mechanical engineering and what they taught and things he had done, he said, I never would have attempted all the things I've done that have been successful had I gone to engineering school. And, you know, when I sold yeah. Armament, I think I had 44 patents. And, you know, I'm not a mechanical engineer. I design shit every day. But I tell you what, I don't know that we ever had an AAC silencer launch downrange. Um, not that everything was great when Ethan Lassard came to work for me once I was making money, and he's the head of my engineering now. Still, you know, he came to work for me 10 years ago. He started fixing a lot of the mounts, um, you know, from an engineering perspective, because I did a lot of things wrong. But they were still solid and robust, and they didn't go downrange. Yeah. Um, you know, and so it's so funny to me, and it really, really aggravates me. Um, you, you know, the best customer service, in my opinion, I can do is provide the best product. That's number one, because I want you to never have a customer service issue. Now, there are people involved, and we make mistakes, and things happen, so you're going to have some. And, you know, and that's kind of the other part to me is that I heard somebody say, 
it's an interesting thing when I watch like Elon Musk what launched that huge rocket the other day to Mars with his yeah. car in it. Like incredible. No one would have believed that could happen 10 years ago. But, you, you know, I, I was talking to one of the advisors to the president not that long ago with just a casual conversation, not because he was listening to me for any political reason, but he's just in the guns. And I was like, yeah. you know, what would be awesome is like, you know, individuals like Elon Musk, we should not tax them. Like they shouldn't pay any tax. Like, they create all these things that just improve life for everyone. Why would we take resource away from them? Like, we should give yeah. them resource. There's probably a couple of dozen guys that could name, you know, Steve Jobs was probably one. Um, you know, Bill Gates at one point was probably one before he, you know, convinced himself saving Africa was the thing to do. But, yeah, you know, there are people who just make these huge impacts They're on a much smaller scale, like, I'm not trying to compare myself to that, but spend money on Q products because, you know, like I saw this guy say this stuff about it, and all I cared about was buying Lamborghinis and stuff like that. You know, it's like, yeah, that's funny because I, I drive like a 2001 excursion right now. But, I've been um, in that excursion. <laughs> you, have a, yeah. you have a Bluetooth speaker in it, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, my new Bluetooth hookup I got for eight bucks off Amazon. But the point is, if you spend your money with me, like I've had everything in life materially that I ever dreamed I could have because I grew up very simply. Um, all I'm going to do is put money back into firearms innovation. Like I love small arms. Yeah. Like, that's what I love. That's one, thing, that's one thing I love about Lorena is, you know, she, her lifestyle is, is pretty dialed, you know, like, um, yeah. They were they were pretty smart. They, there wasn't life insurance or you know any of that, but like you know Johnny was a smart guy and, and made sure like you know their debt ratio was pretty much zero. Like they're 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 really smart about how everything kind of went down. Um, and so that's one thing I love about working for her is I don't have corporate pressure for like bottom line you know this or bottom line that or you know, I need to, you know, pay off this or we're instead over here. It's not none of that. It's She makes business decisions based on what she feels is the right decision morally and objectively. And, and that's been super fun to work for because, you know, we have, just like you, we, we sell a, a fairly expensive product and, you know, people are always like, oh, yeah, it must be nice. You guys probably driving around this or that. It's like, Actually not. She drives a forerunner, you know, and and has been prudent with her money and makes decisions in the company so that more money is being put back into the company to grow it and to make cooler products and enhance like what we've been doing. Yeah, I will agree. Like knowing Lorena personally for a very long time and, you know, knowing her and Johnny and, you know, the whole West Coast scene, you know, where you guys are from is very different for me. And and, and they kind of educated me a lot on it. But, yeah, I mean, Lorena Noveski, whether you guys are doing $10 million a year or $200 million a year, she's probably living in the same, I don't know, she probably lives in a $300,000 house at most in Grants Pass with their three kids, drives a normal car, they have normal lives, and it would not change her at all. Like, she loves the company. No. It's been a part of her life since before their kids were born. And, that you know, it's just who you are. Like, once you've had, you know, and for me, 
like Lorena's probably smarter than me in a lot of ways. She just doesn't care about a lot of material things. And she's very creative and wonderful and loves the employees and wants to treat everyone well. And, you know, that's where she and I agree on it. But, you know, I've gone through the phases of having all kinds of things, and I do like money. Like, I like being able to do certain things, you know, that require money. I I love, you know, being able to take care of my kids and not having to worry about it. We can go out to dinner or whatever. But, um, yeah, you know, if I make... If I make $5 million this year, probably 90% of it goes back into the company to develop more products. Because what I have is what Lorena has. Like, you know, Lorena's different because she's not technical, but she does understand the industry and relies on good people, but loves the employees and loves the culture and loves the company and, you know, loves all that stuff. For me, I love the employees, but I'm really given to the innovation. So that's what I want to invest in. And I know the end result is um, we have a great facility and a great team. I treat people well. I pay them good, take care of them, because I know for what I want to achieve, it requires the smartest people. And the smartest people and the hardest working people, they have lots of opportunity for employment. You know, SIG and Wilcox are less than two miles from us. Yeah. Um, So anybody here could get a job today at any of those companies. Um, so, you know, i got to take care of people, and I want them to be happy because I want them to work hard and develop great products. And like you said, with like I believe with Nevesky or here, when you see you can impact change easily, you know, it's very motivating for people who are self-motivated and want to win and are competitive because, you know, the smartest guy walks here, I just watched him on one of these um, – he was just up here near our conference room where I am. We have one of those, uh, what do you call those things? You strap yourself in it. It's like a chair, kind of you stand up, but it, you flip over backwards and you hang up. Oh, uh, it's like the uh, to adjust your back kind of thing. Yeah. So he was just like doing the, that, lip syncing probably some old school rap knowing him. But, like, he is the smartest guy here by a fair work anywhere but you know he's a peculiar guy he's a mechanical engineer and he wants like two or three things and he wants to know you know and, and that pretty much means he wants like Michelob Ultra he's the only one here that doesn't drink like good beer and um, you know he, he wants this Pac-Man machine that we have here and he wants to set his own hours and he wants to work on things that he can bring to market that is the best or hasn't been done before. And he will work 100 hours here a week at SIG. You know, he wasn't able to kind of impact a lot of change. He wanted to work 40 hours and run out the door. Yeah. So, you know, I see that sort of culture with Lorena and Nevesky as well. And, you know, as a consumer, because I'm a consumer of Nevesky products and of Q products, um, you know, those are the companies you want to buy from. Yeah. And, the passion starts at the top, and if applied properly, it goes all the way through to every employee, and you feel that in the product and in the marketing. And I feel like our two brands align very carefully on that, and, and we're, we have the same sensibilities, which is fun working with you guys and you know, knowing yeah. that we're, we're very similar in a lot of ways. Oh, that reminds me of earlier. Yeah, I agree. Um, one difference I think you and I have is I, I think you're much more structured and do a better job and are much more professional with the marketing. But what I think about with my marketing is, you know, with with, with my creative side and probably my ADD and 
you know, being somewhat irresponsible or unprofessional or however it'd be labeled. Um, you know, I run the product programs. I'm very serious with it. But, you know, the way I view marketing, I was thinking about it this morning, you know, after I woke up with having some breakfast and stuff, thinking about talking to you today, was my – and I think why it's been successful, my marketing strategy is just very emotional. And – and that's somewhat unprofessional, but it's however I feel is when I do it. And it's always very genuine. Like, I don't fake it. Like, when when I named the silencers the trash panda and the thunder chicken, that was that was real at that, that day, that week, that month, whatever. That um, doesn't mean we're going to name more stuff like that. But at that time, my son showed me uh, these alternative animal names, and we were having, like, a great day laughing at all of them. And it just turned into this thing that week to where this makes a lot of sense, and it's funny, and I want to do it. But, you know, I always reserve the right to change my mind because, you know, probably like you, have to make a lot of decisions every day. I'm wrong a lot. Um, but at that time, and that's the way I decided about it's unconventional marketing, and maybe it's guerrilla marketing to some degree. But, you know, I've had all these, um, you know, professional agencies tell me certain ways to do things for brand I- things for brand identity and stuff like this. And, you know, consistency, and it just becomes very boring to me, and then I'm not passionate about yeah. it. But everything we do from a marketing perspective, whether it's putting my dad, you know, on Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes' bodies and putting, you know, name in the <laughs> silence for the half and full Nelson, like – that that was a part of my childhood that probably affected my personality and my favorite wrestlers and you know like that was although it's a goofy funny thing it's like that's a serious thing to me like that yeah. wasn't something just to be like oh we're going to do something outlandish to be different it's just like if i see another omega or titan or you know whatever oh uh, i i i sat in on those product meetings where it's like all right, Mike, I need your team to come up with a product name. And I'm like, oh, man, you come up with 400 good ones, and I could tell you every time I knew which one they were going to pick, which was not the ones that we actually wanted to use. But it uh, it's funny because I remember, you know, as Q was being announced and, you know, stuff started trickling out as to what um, you guys were going to be about and some of the product names and so forth. I was really excited to see how you guys were doing it because, again, like you're just going down that road, you know, having the, you know, sheepdog silencer or whatever. Like, to be able to call it the trash panda, I remember Lorena and I looked at that and we laughed for like 10 minutes. And and that for us is like, like we had no doubts. And it goes back to kind of that theme. Like we had no doubts that the um, – the product was going to be good. That was that was not even a consideration. Um, but to be able to have the um, sort of the the guts to call something so different in an industry that is so regimented by um, tough guy names or you know really yeah. kind of faux meaningful stuff. I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome, and that's that's where it's fun, and you can see your personality in the marketing, and that's that's wildly important because people are are voting with dollars, and they're saying I like you better, you know, and that's yeah. I, I mean, it's so funny. If I had 
you know, freaking 10 bucks for every time somebody said I'm buying that just because it's called the trash can. But, you, you know, it's, it's funny, and I, I think this is my arrogance or narcissism or whatever it is. It, it, it's like I believe, and not me, I believe in our team, and I've always known I wanted to do things more, you know, greater than I was able to do myself. So the idea of having a team is very important. And then we need to have customers that we really support that I'm very loyal to. But I also, like, am a realist and understand there's 10 to 20% of customers I don't want. I don't want your money. I don't want you calling here. I don't want you sending emails. I don't want your freaking business. All right? Yeah. And there just is. Um, You know, and I would say it's the same even for me in, like, every aspect of my life, whether it's family members or, you know, whatever it is. Like, I don't need you in my life. Um, You know, I can't sell to everyone. And uh, and I just don't care if you're not if you're not going to buy our stuff anyway. I don't give a shit what you think. Um, well, that's but, that's where social know, media is so much fun. <laughs> yeah, everyone's well, everyone the biggest opinion. Everyone with the biggest opinion can either would never buy your product or can't afford it, but they're the ones that talk the most trash, and that's oh that's yeah. The the, the, oh, we screwed up the fix by not using the AI mag, and you know, come to find out, this guy's trolling me on the internet. You know, he works at State Farm selling fucking insurance, and I'm like, <laughs> you know what? Qualified opinions. If, if you can, I will give you a grant, and you you build something, design something that's better. How about that? Otherwise, just shut the hell up and go back to servicing, you know, your home fire customers or whatever you're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, like I don't want your opinion. You know, it's just like I have a good deal with my banker. Like um, he doesn't get in the silencer business, and I don't loan people money. And and we're we're super cool, you know. Like we don't have to argue. But I remember, you know, somebody used to work with, and and my old boss at Remington, Jason Schauble, he and my ex-wife have called me a narcissist so many times. And you know, and I think at first, like I thought it meant something. And then the older I get, the more I learn about, the more you read, the more you study, the more you see people like Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, you know, Warren Buffett, um, yeah. just people that Eugene Stoner, people that have changed the world. It, it's like, yeah, like a true narcissist. I don't know. But like having an aspect of that, there is no one that's a leader or that changes the world that doesn't have like a big touch of that in them. And so now yeah. it's like I just laugh when people come up with like uh, – you know, whether it's my ex-wife or, or Jason Shovel or Josh Waldron or whoever it is, it'll say something like that about me or to me. And it just makes me giggle at their ignorance. And it's like, yeah, I'm not really ashamed of that. Um, what, what I do is very self-serving because I get incredible gratification out of kicking ass, developing product, innovating. Um, and I'm not going to apologize. You know, I put – Everything, you know, I've dedicated my entire adult life. Uh, I'm 44, so 25 years to developing small arms. Um, you know, silencers, trying to make those mainstream. Uh, um, NSW wanting 300 Whisper commercialized, doing that, you know, and I know I took some criticism for that. All it is is 300 Whisper. Well, yeah, sort of, kind of. Um, or... You know, silencer technology, developing these new guns, doing whatever. Um, you know, that's what really drives me, and it is very selfish because it's very satisfying in my life. Um, yeah, and, and I don't feel guilty for that. Like I'm not having like 
white privilege guilt. Like, I did this a good thing that I do um, and provide for a lot of people, and it's my passion, and I'm not going to apologize for it anymore. So that's been really, you know, as I, as I grow and try to mature, that's been a, a really interesting thing for me to, to kind of learn. No, for sure. And I think you have to have a little bit of that in you to, like, like you said, to be successful. There's, I, I don't know, it's a, it's an interesting um, interesting world when, you know, if you take some pride in what you do and actually want to back up in any way possible what you do, people criticize that as being narcissistic or um, self-centered or, or whatnot. It's yeah. Well, it's crazy know, think, because it's like, well, just because you don't have anything in your life that you're really proud of or like accomplished, like, I mean, don't don't put that guilt on me, Ricky Bobby, kind of thing. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, that's. Well, I think yeah, you said like, it I did. Like, I, I was watching some of the Olympics last night, you know, and and um, like I don't know Sean White personally, but I love seeing him win the gold medal. You know, it, his yeah. age, which he's still very young, but. You know, it's almost like double the age of, like, the people who were on top. You know, it's almost like snowboarding's like mixed martial arts. Now we're at a generation where kids have been doing it since they could walk, where when he started, well, that wasn't the case. Yeah, put it in perspective, like, when he started, it was just probably a, a family self-funded opportunity, meaning they just went to the mountain and he rode, whereas now – there's snowboard camps, snowboard schools. You can send your kid yep. to a boarding school, and they just like during the summer they're doing gymnastics so they can learn how to flip and all that stuff. And then during the winter they're on the board, and and that's like a full time year round thing. And yeah, we're getting this. we're getting more like China now in that regard. But yeah, actually up here yeah. in New England, there's one. My son goes to boarding school, but not not for Olympics. But um, his one of his um, his uh his schoolmates, his sister goes to like that that huge school for that in Vermont. Um she's wanting to go to the Olympics. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. But you well, know it's funny. Sean White, my in Atlanta, my old neighbor was his kindergarten teacher. And uh, I think in California. And so it was what you're saying. You know, like I think just, there's some lessons to be learned in that too where, you know, for for the I think that mentality of, like, there's no longer soccer moms, but there's, like, snowboarding moms or skateboarding moms. So when I was at D.C., I, I oversaw one-third of all the sports that D.C. Um, participated in. I remember, yeah. so BMX, BMX was one of them. I didn't ride BMX really ever other than, like, I had one, but skateboarding was more interesting to me. And anyhow, so I, I ended up with BMX as one of my responsibilities, and I remember – went to a contest and there was a Russian kid and he was probably like, I don't know, 13 or 14 competing against like men, like 18 to 24 year olds. And the yeah. kid was good. And I remember like his dad was yelling what tricks to do off from the sideline as he was running around the course, screaming at his kid <clears throat> and his kid ended up, uh, missing a landing on a ramp and fell pretty hard, got hurt. And the dad went up and yelled at him for missing the landing. And and it was just, it, it was pretty eye-opening because I got, my interest in skateboarding specifically was I liked the counterculture component 
we we mobbed around on skateboards and you know raised hell but we had fun and and it was i liked it because i grew up playing organized sports a lot and it was kind of this outlet where i didn't have to worry about a team i didn't have to worry about you know certain expectations of winning or losing or it, it was just a creative outlet and you would look at you know a piece of concrete or whatever and figure out like well here's my skill set what can i do on this and just have fun and you're doing it with all your buddies and you're running from the cops and you're doing you know whatever else but like that was always the fun part and i think this mentality of like the the soccer mom component in action sports now has actually killed that industry because it's taken that identity away from it and you know that's not dissimilar with any other industry when you start deviating from what started it it becomes something disingenuine and people fall well, away from it i think what you're saying is the same thing that's kind of happened with firearms like with private equity getting involved you know yep. snowboarding skateboarding was all outcast i mean tony hawk when he was a household name was broke and now look at how yeah. huge skateboarding is um so so yeah there there is probably something to that um you know, but it's where I know I drew all of my AAC marketing from originally was skateboarding. You know, I've been skateboarding my entire life. I love it. I skate with my son every week still. We have a half pipe. Um, and, you know, I was never good or committed enough to be great at it. But I do enjoy it. I love the culture. Um, I love the sense of freedom. And you're right. It is one thing where parents were never involved until now. So that's pretty interesting. But, hey, yeah. speaking of skateboarding, I got some questions for you. Yeah. So were, were you Vans or Airwalk? I was Vans growing up. I had, totally. I had I had one pair of Airwalks because I really liked the skateboarder who was sponsored by them, but they're a pair of Jason Lee Airwalks. Yeah. Oh, Jason, Jason Lee. Jason Lee. Jason Lee has the best 360 flips in the whole entire world. Like, that guy's style is insane. So I, I got a pair of those, but typically I was a Vans guy. Yeah. Well, is, is Jason Lee, is, is that, that's the actor now, like my cousin Earl? Yeah, that's, yeah he, was, he was on that Earl show. Um, I think he's, like, he went into Scientology and has kind of got into that world. And oh, I, the last I heard of him, after that Earl show got canceled, I – He's on the IHOP commercial as the voiceover, but that's about yeah, all he, I know. He's awesome. Well, what about um, – so who is your your favorite skater or um, like old school skater or team back in, uh, you know, back in the day, the late 80s or mid-80s or early uh, 90s? My, my favorite was uh, Gator. He rode for Vision. Oh. Uh, yeah, he sure did, and murdered his girlfriend's in prison. Yeah, he's still in prison. Um, <laughs> he, it's it's so nuts because like I I met him when I was a kid. I went to a demo, and he gave me a a vision sticker. And actually, I still I one of the boards I still ride is a is a Gator because they did a reproduction of him. But yeah. um, it's he was so good, and he was he was a he was a um. A pipe guy, a half pipe guy, and yeah. he, he his, there's actually a really. I'll find a link and send it to you. There's a good documentary about his life, and he kind of fell apart when skateboarding went from 
you know, these Burgess big street. contests to street, and he could not cope. He could not – he couldn't – he didn't have the same ease as he did on a ramp, and that's kind of when, like, drugs and everything else happened, and he'd, like – stabbed his girlfriend, put her in a sleeping bag, and drove her out to the desert outside of San Diego. And It's so nuts. Like, I, my brother and I had a skateboard shop for a while uh, before I went to work for D.C., and the guys who were making our shop decks were the guys who used to make all the vision stuff, and so they had some inside stories about all that that happened because he came to the, the factory and was hiding for a couple days. and like It was just like this huge huge thing, but the guy's style was insane. He wasn't probably, you know, he wasn't the Bones Brigade, which I love all those guys. Um, oh, that's what I was just about to say. They were my favorite. I love the Bones Brigade. Uh, Steve Caballero is one of my favorite human beings. Yeah, that that dude is cool and, you know, pretty pretty amazingly humble for, like, the accomplishments that, that they uh, were able to acquire, you know, and just, I don't know, they... The Bones Brigade was awesome. Um, yeah, so for those don't, not, that don't know, not listening, that was Paul Peralta's team, and that was um, Lance Mountain, Tony Hawk, Steve Caballero, Mike McGill, Tommy uh, Guerrero, who was a great street skater, probably the best at the time when there was no one skating yeah. street. He was, in, and then it then it evolved into like Steve Stedman and Ray Barbie and a bunch of other guys. But um, yeah, they they were incredible. Tony Hawk was so unbelievably superhuman, but Steve Caballero has just always been. And to see him and now Christian Hasoy out of prison and yeah. um, all those guys just shred now. They're all 50 and having their 50th birthday parties at the Van Skate Park and posting the videos of it. And, you know, they still skate like they're 20 years old, 50 years old, you know, getting 10 feet of air. Um, doing all kinds of stuff that they were doing, and now them teaching all their kids to skate and seeing that—that's so cool to me. I'm I'm pretty jealous of that. I so the height of my skate career, I was doing handrails and stuff. I, I was more of a street guy. I'm, I'm terrible on ramps, but um, I look at handrails now that I'm like, you know, 15 years ago. I'm like, that would have been fun, but I can't even imagine doing any of that right now. I can cruise around and. I have my little laundry list of like tricks I can do almost any time I get on a board, but uh, yeah, to see those guys do what they do—that's that just shows how big of a gap there is in that world of like the highest end of skateboarder to like the rest of us who are just out having fun on it. It's just a different level altogether. You know, it's funny. Um, a professional baseball player by the name of Blake Dewitt, who is a friend of mine. And, you know, he's like a mid-level player. I think he played in the major leagues for about 10 or 12 years for the Cubs, the Dodgers, the Braves, maybe one other team. But it's funny. He was at my farm one time, you know, and he's like kind of a small guy, probably 5'9", 170 pounds or so, real fit, fit as shit, you know. Um, Just a Midwest, just great dude. Uh, who I totally love. You know, he's super into hunting and shooting. Like, sports, he, he he did that so he could make a lot of money, but he loves hunting and fishing. He's just that guy, you know. And, yeah. And he got uh, hurt in a car accident, kind of ended his career. He had a back injury. and moved back home and, you know, um, just a super humble. Anyway, he's at the farm one day um, at my farm in Georgia a few years ago, and um, – 
one of the the really elite special operations teams. Some guys from there were came to the farm to test some stuff. And so kind of in exchange, them kind of testing some stuff, they were going to show me and Blake some long-range stuff, because he's the guy that actually introduced me to 6.5 Creedmoor several years ago. Um, oh, that's cool. So so we're kind of doing that, hanging out for a few days, and we're at my 100-meter range uh, at the farm, and one of the guys brought down, he had won in a sniper competition, like an FN shotgun or something. So I had, in the range house, I had a couple of cases of, like, clay pigeons. So we're just standing there throwing the pigeons, you know. And these are guys who are elite badass athletes themselves in the most elite special operations group in the history of the world, you know. And, yeah. and most of them have, like, either brothers that play pro football and stuff like that. Yeah, they have and, that athletic gene that, you know, quick – yeah, they're just they could they could have applied themselves in other sports and been or other things and been you know pro whatever. Yeah, so we're sitting there we're throwing them and um, I think Blake actually shot first and we're able to throw the clay pigeons whatever like twenty thirty yards and you know like a little frisbee you chunk it kind of like a baseball fling it like a frisbee yep. does you get it so Blake decides to start throwing them. He can throw them like seventy-five to a hundred yards, <laughs> and, and he's the smallest guy there. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and we're like, "What the hell?" They're like, "Oh, well, no wonder he plays major league baseball." And so yeah. we're talking to him that night, and um, you know, like it, it was kind of public how much money he made. Of course, all those ball players, it is. And and yeah. I said something about like Derek Jeter and um, Alex Rodriguez, and. I was like, so what's the deal? Is there that big of a difference? Are those guys that great? Where they are worth like 25 of you, essentially. And yeah. he says, it is so humbling. He says, you know, I'm from a small town in Missouri. I was all state, like all four years or whatever, in two or three sports. He says, dominated, recruited, you know, was drafted to the major leagues, played in the major leagues for 10 years. He says... The most humbling experience in the world is you get on a field to do some, like with Derek Jeter, you know, to do some fielding. Yeah. And he's he is 100 times better than everyone else. And I'm like, bullshit. He's like, his reactions, his strength, his speed, his reflexes, he makes you feel like an idiot. He says, it's like Michael Jordan playing a middle school basketball team. Like, that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and uh, it, it is. That's how yeah. my thing was with skateboarding. I I had big aspirations, you know, like not like I thought I was going to be ever like a pro, but I I wanted to be good, you know. I wanted to like go yeah. out and do well, and I'm a little bit competitive, so that kind of plays in there. But I, you know, growing up in San Diego, you're kind of in the epicenter of of skateboarding, and so. You know, we made friends, and your friends had friends. Anyways, the first time you ever go skate with, like, a real pro, it's you just sit on your board, and you enjoy watching the show. And, yeah, and most of them are cool enough to where, you know, if you start skating with them, they'll show you some stuff, which was super helpful. And and so for me, I ended up, like, realizing that ever getting sponsored or anything like that was never in my cards. I started having fun filming and shooting photos, and that was like a big deal for me. That was that's where I felt kind of more 
at home because I was capable of those things, but doing it in a way that I loved and got to roll around and mess around a little bit. So it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's awesome. Well, um, what else? What else is non-gun related? Yeah, I still love skateboarding and the culture. I'm so glad my son got into it. Actually, his his boarding school they have a skate park on campus, which is I think oh, the thing that's awesome. important. Which he he goes to boarding school if he's got some um, processing issues. But, um, so but what's your yeah. what's your board setup that you're running right now? Right now, it's funny. I'm glad you asked. Um, and my son got it for me for Christmas. It's the new Powell, uh, their flight decks, which, you know, they eliminated a couple layers of uh, wood and put carbon fiber so they're thinner and stiffer and lighter. Um, it, it's Caballero's signature one, so it's kind of a mid-range, old-school, um, you know, shape. Um, yeah. I have, I, I've got uh, Spitfire, I forget which Spitfire wheels, um, but something that's decent for the indoor park here in the street. And um, I buy, now that I have a good job, I buy the best Swiss bearings that you can buy. Um, A-back and they might be or whatever. <laughs> yeah, they might be Bones brand, but, you know, it's like $70 bearings. That there's no Oh, they're like the... Like the ceramic ones or whatever? No, I'm too fat now. I don't get the ceramic ones because I like bust them. <laughs> thanks, thanks for bringing that up, ass. But, um, and then I'm bigger it, than you I love, are. Yeah, I love independent trucks, and they have the new hollows now, which it makes me want to build trucks because I love independent. I've always skated independent trucks. I've had others, but um, – you know, they hollowed the, the the steel, like, axles and stuff in them. Yeah. And it's not the way to make those lighter. Like, if my engineers worked on it for a day, they could have a superior product that probably weighed 30% less for, you know, half the price. But that, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to get in the skateboarding business. So that's my setup. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Like, they, you know, independent trucks, and that's the – I've – tried some other stuff in the past um there was uh rodney mullen had a company called tensor trucks and oh yeah it, rodney rodney mullen's such like a nerd like he's yeah he's like spectrum genius and he uh so tensor is based off of tensor algebra you know this really advanced mathematic language and Anyway, that those trucks are pretty cool, but I always went back to independence and I that was always kind of a big one for me. I I still ride them and I ride a pretty wide deck now. Um yeah, sort of bigger wheels, but I'm always on like a 8.25 or 8.5 inch deck. I really like uh toy I ride a toy machine mostly. Uh and I'm always torn. I either get pig wheels or or Spitfire. Um, I'm on pigs right now. But. Yeah, I, I like the, you know, I generally skate half pipe and pull and stuff, so I like the wider boards in general. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I've tried goaling and tracker, all that stuff over the years, but I like the independent trucks. Um, but, you know, I was torn getting this board when my son wanted to get me one for Christmas um, because there's a local skate company up here in New Hampshire, and I really want to support them. And then I love Mike Bellaley, you know, and yeah, he's such a cool, you know, figure in skateboarding and such like just a tough guy and his life yeah. kind of gone full too. And just, you know, just a real artist and a neat guy. But you know what I came back to? So those were the three I wanted. 
but I came back to supporting technology and innovation. So even in other industries, like if I'm going to spend my money and you got somebody trying something new, because skateboards haven't changed a lot in 25 years, but you got somebody trying something new, I want to try to support it because I love the idea of, of innovation and anything because, you know, it's really, I think, kind of what I'm given to in our industry. So that's a choice I made. Well, I, I love that. I'm, I remember, like, we were working with a Dex uh, company that made a lot for a lot of the West Coast brands, and um, we were trying to put snowboard base material on the nose and tail for tail and nose slides, so actually yep. laminating that in. And we had some prototypes that worked pretty good. They were going to they were gonna end up being too expensive for that time period. Um, they, they probably would have worked now, but, you know, it's fun to see that stuff or – you know, there's companies using different types of wood. Most of them use maple laminate. Yep. So then some some are putting bamboo or, you know, different kind of, uh, you know, carbon fiber inlays. I love that stuff. And I love that, yep. you know, you can you can still have the same feel of the board but lighter or uh, stronger. Yep. You know, I mean, I'm a big dude, and I would break decks every week. And that was oh, that was wow. actually how I even got into, like, wanting to have a skateboard shop was I was tired of spending money on, you know, four decks a month, <laughs> five decks a month at full price, you know, barely having a job. And, you know, yeah, I opened up a, uh, I opened up a wholesale account, talked this company into let me get it, even though I didn't have a business. And I would just sell to all my friends at cost. And the way yeah. they would always work stuff is you'd get, um, if you bought 12 boards, you always got one free, like the baker's dozen. And so you would, I would keep the free deck and then sell the rest. And eventually it was like my brother had a snowboard shop, and I was like, let's just do skateboards in there. And so we, we combined and, and started doing that. But, yeah, it's, it's funny. I I agree with you. It's it's cool to, like, like, reward with dollars people that are actually trying, especially in a sport that – is so has been so technology. Well, yeah, you know, we actually had to order it. I asked a couple of skate shops here, and we're in a pretty affluent area, you know, on the seacoast here in New Hampshire, just above Boston. And yeah. um, they said the deck, the flight decks, because you know, like a regular deck's fifty to sixty bucks now, it seems. And, and you know, yeah. you get like a shop deck for thirty five forty, but the flight decks are like eighty to ninety five. It seems, and they're like it's just too expensive, so we don't carry them. People won't buy them, is what they thought. I'm like, oh, huh. So we had to order it, which that was pretty interesting. But um, who? So who is your uh, favorite old school rap uh, group or individual? And who do you think was the best lyricist? Okay, that's a good one. Um. I'm pretty like so West Coast guy for sure. Uh, I I'm always torn because I it's like death row records. Like you could throw a dart and hit one of the guys, and, and I would probably say that they're my favorite. But I always enjoy Tupac. Um, yeah, I think I think Tupac was he had a Although I would, the only part about Tupac I didn't like is uh, there's some digital underground songs that he was on, and it sounded so forced and so uh, I don't know. I, I don't know that. So I, 
it, it was like Humpty Dance kind of stuff. <laughs> it weird. But uh, yeah. um, I don't know. But then I'm also torn because I really – Tribe Called Quest is probably it's played on my phone more than any other uh, older hip-hop. And yeah, those those guys are smooth and they have good lyrics. I mean – I, you know, Lorena isn't. I mean, she's she has a pretty broad music background. I remember like showing her like some tracks from people that were like, you know, rap nowadays is so much. It's terrible compared to what it was, in my opinion. And to be able to like go back and you actually are hearing a story being told, you know, Buster Rhymes is like a like super good at that. And like, you know, there's. But for me, old school. If we're talking 1990s. Um, if I was pinned up against a wall and had to say it, it would be Ice Cube. His, oh, his 90s yeah. stuff is good. West Coast. Yeah, I loved NWA, and I'm probably a few years older than you. Yeah, my, my favorite, and I listened to this morning on the way to school. My daughter actually played it. Um, Big Daddy Kane, so East Coast. Yeah. But, uh, ain't no half-stepping, which I think has been in some videos we've done here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's that's. My I love favorite. that stuff. I, it's you know I grew up listening predominantly to hip hop, and I was that was just kind of the people I was friends with, the, the influences I had in life. That was kind of where I went, and uh, yeah, it's fun. Like there's so much good stuff out there. I remember you know in the '90s I was very much polarized to the West Coast side. Uh, could yeah. and Biggie or, or uh, Biggie or um or uh, Puffy or whatever Puff Daddy and I just couldn't I couldn't I was I was towing the line and yeah it was a, it was a nation divided yeah yeah and as I got older I started listening to the other side of the United States music from that time period and started gaining a different appreciation for it and have enjoyed kind of discovering things I would never listen to because I was against it <laughs> because of where I live. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. It, you get older, hopefully you get smarter, wiser, open-minded about certain things. Well, um, what else do I have here? Marketing influences. What have been your biggest marketing influences or what are companies, you know, for instance, outside of the industry that inspire you or you think do a good job? Hmm. You know, I still take a lot of inspiration from the skate industry. I pick up a Thrasher magazine, and you know, that's that to me is is where. And I think in that space, everyone's kind of equal. Like, there's not really huge standouts. Um, but I just the there's a certain freedom that these companies have in the skate space that that is kind of frowned upon in our in the gun industry and and I love where I work because I can have the latitude to take that irreverence and bring it into the gun world and yeah, I think for me the skate industry is always going to be ahead on that um and people will will mimic that in other spots as well yeah I, I think you know for probably my persona um you know, my beliefs and sort of the marketing, kind of the inspirations for me, like I grew up loving, you know, Southern wrestling 
um, which was very different than like uh, the East Coast wrestling, but that and skateboarding. And there's just such a sense of creativity and freedom and, um, you know, just a real, especially in wrestling, like a willing suspension of disbelief um, yeah. that allows you to be really creative. And with skateboarding, too, it's always been such like a freaking, um, you know, like a hooligan sort of outlaw thing to where it just wasn't accepted anywhere for a long time. You know, I think that's one blessing of, like, Tony Hawk and that video game, trying to make it, you know, and it becoming more mainstream, um, where we actually have parks and, you know, municipalities spending money on building parks for kids and all now. And, um, you know, I think Tony Hawk actually has a big charity for that, helping to raise money for him. And yeah, um, the, the interesting part of that, uh, just as, like, a counterpoint, is – one of the one of the reasons that cities do that is so that they can make skateboarding illegal everywhere else. So they, they <laughs> build a park, they build a park, and then they make skateboarding on the sidewalk illegal or transportation via skateboard illegal. It's it's kind of yeah. interesting. It's an interesting byproduct of something really cool, and you know it's awesome to see. Oregon has really awesome skate parks. So does Utah, and. It's fun to see them pop up and actually take people like Tony Hawk's uh, expertise and, you know, build something that's really cool for the community, like you're saying. Yeah. Well, maybe it wasn't illegal in uh, San Diego, but where I'm from, like, it it was always illegal everywhere, Uh, sidewalks and all that stuff. So San Diego um, was a trip, though. I was was in the airport yesterday, and – it's the only airport in the world where they announce that you're not allowed to skateboard between terminals. Like, that's on their automated uh, message that comes across <laughs> as you're in the airport. Yeah, I've never heard that. <laughs> I was laughing so hard when I heard it. I'm like, the only place in the world that says no skateboarding at the airport. Yeah. Meaning that people were actually skateboarding because they had to tell people to stop it. Oh, yeah. It was happening enough, it was happening enough that it actually became part of their automated message. This is a a different question, too, but, I mean, I I know the answer for me, so I want to ask you, what time of day, is there a time of day um, that you're most creative? Uh, Evenings. Evenings. I'm a night owl, and I think uh, I'm, like, admin in the day, and then towards the evening – that's when I, I start, like, like and, you know, I have kids and, and responsibilities outside of work. And so there's – when that stuff's all, like, in bed and put away and or done or whatever, that's when my mind kind of allows itself to, like, break free of the monotony of emails and stuff like that to where I can start really focusing on some creative projects or ideas I want to do. And I try to do stuff you know, for Nevesky always. Uh, but then I also have other side stuff that I like to do just to keep my brain, you know, sort of fresh. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me that's like doing lunch cards for my kids. But, yeah, I find that I solve the most things and I'm most creative after REM, like after I have a sleep. So in the mornings, in the, in the, in the shower generally is where I come up with 90% of any creative thought I have during the day. 
And at the end of the day, I'm, you know, just easily exhausted because I have, you know, same thing, three kids, and there's always activities and all that stuff and, you know, work. I've been trying to steer the ship and help solve some problems. And, you know, it, it's like where I see the advantage of, like, Netflix, um, where I can just kind of chill out and not do anything except do lunch cards for my kids. But oh, sure. that's interesting. Well, well um, I, go ahead. I was going to say, I had a funny one. Um, my old boss at DC Shoes, Ken Block, he uh, he's sponsored by this, like, supplement company. And they have this supplement for your brain. I think it's called Alpha Brain. And, like, one of the side effects on the bottle says you'll have, like, very lucid dreams. And he takes the stuff, swears by it, says it helps clear. It's just vitamins, essentially, but... It helps clear his mind. He's, you know, his thought process is clear. But he said that his dreams kind of are gnarly. And I ended up, I wanted to kind of get more in that zone and uh, have better sleep and have, you know, my brain a little bit less foggy sometimes. And so I started taking that stuff. And I had some of the craziest dreams I've ever had. In fact, I stopped taking it because the dreams night after night were like, they weren't much stressful, but it was definitely, like, very lucid and very uh, – uh, it was different, too different for me, so I had to, like, stop taking it. But, I don't know, it's, it's funny how I always try – I'm chasing how to be more creative and how to open my mind up more without doing illegal substances. And, you know, it's so it's kind of a, a fun, funny way to, like, approach that with, like, some brain vitamins that screw up your sleep. Um, yeah, it's it's funny. I've listened to you know some podcasts and some guys here read some things recently about executives doing like hallucinogens and stuff like that for the same reason, like creative problem solving. Which I would assume that's how Elon Musk has come up with all these crazy ideas. Well, God bless. Him. And Steve Jobs, Steve admitted to that, you know, quite frequently that his his hallucinogenic drug um, intake is what he wouldn't have achieved what he did without that. Yeah, I totally believe it. Well, um, sorry, I decided to have a snack. Um, no problem. The problem that right. we have is we're in this like really, you know, federally regulated business, and that kind of behavior <laughs> yeah. doesn't exactly uh, jive well. So, yeah. Um, what else? Well, before we end, let's get to some Nebeski stuff. What's yeah. new? Um, what are you guys doing that's new? What are you excited about? What are you not doing anymore? What do you have to tell us? So we have a lot of cool stuff going on. We're, um, you know, obviously we at Shot Show we we kind of spilled the beans on a ten millimeter. Um, uh, PDW style rifle that will be taking a MP5 uh, 10 millimeter mag. That thing's really. We had a lot of buzz about that. A lot of um, not only civilian sales, but then you know a lot of police departments were super interested in it. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Some some military, but um, yeah. So that is cool. That reminds me. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> the other song we listened to this morning was Gangster's Paradise with Coolio. Yeah. And um, on the way to school, that reminds me of him with the 10-millimeter in his hand and a gleam in his eye. So is, yeah. is this the, the Coolio model? 
Yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a Coolio model. Um, I think we're trying to figure out the name for it. Um, we'll have something probably funny for it, but maybe not as controversial as our last one. But we'll see. So <laughs> the uh, what's that? Yeah, what happened with that last one? Well, it was everything happened exactly how we thought it would happen, and for us. Uh, you know, we we loved working with you guys on the stock and, and bolt carrier group. And, you know, the look of the gun is where we wanted it to be. There's a lot of cool interest. We sold a bunch. You know, naming it the Ghetto Blaster, um, I can say with 100% honesty that our intentions were pure. It wasn't anything that was sketchy other than the fact that, like, we grew up in the 80s and 90s. I own several Ghetto Blaster boom boxes. and I like the correlation between this short, without a can on it, extremely loud, uh, compact, you know, rifle, and the correlation with the short, loud, you know, compact speaker system. And so, I mean, people took it the way they wanted it to, um, but all in all, it was a pretty good launch. We knew we couldn't keep it the Ghetto Blaster name. Uh, especially attracting, you know, law enforcement or military deals with it that doesn't exactly look good on the side of the gun in that capacity. So we filed two variances for names before we launched it. We knew that the first hundred were going to be, or hundred or so, were going to be uh, Ghetto Blaster, and then the rest would be called the N4 PDW. And so we kind of went with like something really uh, innocuous and boring. Um, kind of as a just a fun way to like make fun of the fact that some it's uh, funny because so, everybody you know. calls it I was saying everybody you know with the um, which you know I like different names so the ghetto blaster was great to me but I hear where you're coming from you know I, I'm against because everybody names everything the PDW and I always yeah. think well personal defense weapon you know because I, I wanted to call the honey badger you know, it was a POW, a POW. It's a personal offensive weapon, which I thought yeah. for me maybe made more sense. I might steal that. Um, you can you can have it. No choice. You're cool. So yeah, we're, ten millimeter will be um, will be coming out uh, pretty soon. We're going to do a nine millimeter, totally different platform. It won't have uh, a buffer tube. It'll be a proprietary. Um, operating system we wanted to have either collapsible or side folder stock um super compact if you wanted but you know we'll probably be using um colt nine millimeter mags for that and then yeah we have we're we're still working on some bolt gun applications and um not totally trying to invent reinvent the wheel but also do something that's not like you can just go to like Brownells and buy all the parts off the shelf and put it together. So try to do something along that line. We're, we've been working on um, a couple of cool directions that we're excited about. So yeah, I mean, otherwise, you know, the the other big one is we're doing Gen Four. Um, you know, the interesting part about the the rifle industry, and you have a lot more experience in this than I do, but you know. Johnny was a very trusting guy and someone who um, 
believed in handshakes meant your word was as good as you are, you know. And for us, uh, you know, the Gen 3 and Gen 2 design for our receiver set as well as our handguard, he had handshake deals with guys that helped build that or helped design it. And, you know, as soon as he passed away um, and things weren't going as favorably for them with their relationship with Noveski, started selling, you know, that version rifle to other people or for themselves. And so we're, we finally are getting away from that design. Um, not a complete abandonment, but an evolution to where we can actually protect the design that we've had. And that'd be cool. There'd be some added features, um, ambi bolt drops, et cetera. Yeah, that makes sense. That was that was probably like one of the things going into Novesky that was a challenge was, you know, Johnny had a lot of good personal relationships with people, and when he passed away, some of those soured, and having to like um, go in and and protect the company and protect our designs, protect our our look, uh, became probably one of the first and most important jobs I had at the company, especially as president. Um, I don't know. It, yeah. Gen four is a kind of Gen four is kind of a product of that that situation. Um, we'll probably still still sell some Gen three stuff here and there, but uh, we're gonna do a slow launch. We'll have the Gen four Infidel will be our first model, and then every few months or so after that, we'll release another version of the Gen four. Well, that's cool. I didn't know about the um. I know about that. I didn't know about the nine millimeter gun. Um, you say you're going to use Colt mags, nine millimeter SMG mags. Yeah, I think that's where that's where we're heading right now with it. I didn't even know those were still available. So you, there, we found some places that um, that can make them for us. That we just we have some on order, so we're going to test them, and if they run good, then we'll continue down that road. I don't like Glock mags in the in, in the AR platform, so I mean there's some other ones you can you can look at, but you know for the most part the uh, the way Glock mags index and look in in an AR I think looks ridiculous, so we'll stay away from that. But yeah, I agree. It's silly looking. You know, I see some people I guess using what MP5 mags as well. Yeah, and the problem is with MP5 bag, it just doesn't have last round hole open like the the Colt yeah. one does. So that's a that's huh. a small nuance. I mean, it's kind of like if that's what you're into, you're into it. I mean, I have a bunch of MP5s, and that doesn't bother me. But you know, I'm trying to figure that yeah. out. So it, it is MP5 interesting. Is the MP5 being so iconic and people being passionate about it. But how if you release that gun today, you know, what do they sell for? Like three to seven thousand dollars for the commercial yeah. variant that are you know, like uh that Dakota tactical guy, I mean I think all he does is buy parts kits and then makes the receivers and bends them and whatever you got a five thousand dollar gun. Can you imagine though coming out with one today with that gun that expensive doesn't have last um, you know, doesn't have last round stop or bolt hold open. Excuse me, doesn't have, you know, the triggers are shit, the guns weigh eight pounds. I mean, what a flop that thing would be today. Yeah, um, I mean, and and give that thing credit for where credit's due. It's 
iconic. It's like when I was growing up in the 80s, I wanted that gun so bad. And when I finally had the ability to do it and got one, it was probably the coolest thing. And and literally, like, I have a K, an A3, an SD, and then I have a 53. And, like, all those are, like, those are, like, my favorite. Those are the ones I take to the range and, like, when I'm shooting with new people or, or friends that, like, want cool stuff. I mean, always sprinkle in some of that, right? And but you're absolutely right, though. Like for what it is, and for what it does, and for the weight, the ability nowadays with the advances in firearms capability and and machining. I mean, that's uh, it, well. Here's the interesting one. At Shot Show, I was talking to a, a police chief, and we were telling him about 10 millimeter, and he's like, "Well, is your gun gonna shake to pieces like the MP5?" You know, and the MP5 had, you know, legendary issues with, you know, uh, the 10-millimeter. And, like, no, built in 1979 or whatever. Like, we, this is this is a a new platform and, you know, the most advanced machine. You know, I was almost dumb, dumbfounded that the guy asked that question because – and he was serious. And because nowadays we have the capability and the machining and the material choices – this isn't stamped metal, you know. It's it's high quality aluminum that's been machined to really tight tolerances and yeah, more accurate, more reliable, lighter weight. That's where it is today. Yeah, I mean, I, I too, I, I give those guys a lot of shit about the the roller lock stuff, but you know, I love them. I have all of them. Um, my kids love shooting the MP5 SD. So do I. Um, so, but but you know, I, I sort of um, liken it to to you, you know having a current sports car and then having like a you know a '60s vet. You know, you get you've got a 1960s Corvette. I don't care what other car you own if you've got a Bugatti or a, a Ferrari, Lamborghini, uh, anything. The '60s vet, I'm still going to spend as much time looking at or more. And yeah. love drop it just as much. I mean, it's just yeah. It's, I mean, like every, all other industries, something classic. Um, well, I, you know, and to say something about you know Dakota Tactical, like I have one of his guns um, in my personal collection, and he he does really good work. I mean, it it looks you put it up against um, a factory German HK, and you would be hard pressed to tell the difference between the two, and they shoot amazing. And it's cool because he like is providing these things where you can't get them, and and he does a good job with it. I think it's funny because I'm friends with both you guys. Watching you guys go back and forth on on social media has provided a lot of laughter for me, and I crack up every time you guys get into it. But you know, it's it's interesting, and that's that's kind of for the gun world. Um, people are so passionate about what they do or their subset of the gun industry that when you start, you know, cross contaminating different subsets, you know, there's, there's always some strife and it's, it's, for me, it's kind of fun to watch, uh, unless I'm involved with it, then I get frustrated, but, but uh, <laughs> I think it's, it's, I think it's all fun to watch. Like, but to me, um, you know, I'll compare the honey badger to the MP5 SD and you know the, the his the social media cowboys will give me some grief about it, and it's like you know kind of shut your hole and know your role. 
like we were well, asked to replace that gun with the honey badger. So I'm gonna, I don't consider the honey badger a rifle. I consider the original honey badger a submachine gun replacement because that's what the most elite group in the history of the world asked me to do. And that's why we designed yeah, the honey badger. And that's what I think the crux of the gun industry is. People are so adverse to change. They, they are yeah. so, they're so scared of the unknown and moving forward that in their mind, you're just saying like, no, the MP5 sucks. And you're not saying that at all. You're just saying not at all. This is, this is what the future of, you know, submachine guns look like. Or this is, yeah, this but- is what, this this is the evolution of this type of application, and you know the guys who are going to be using it, they evolve so much faster than the industry does. And when you talk to them and what their needs are and and what their requirements are, it's so far beyond. You couldn't sell that commercially, like some of the stuff they want, um, but you can, and it takes time. And there's some education, and there's some like, oh wait, like he's not actually saying like discrediting the mp5 for what it's done as far as how much it's been deployed and how many people have used it absolutely not like it's the standard and that's why i compare it and um, yeah but you know the difference is rather than taking the tack of your you know what that guy does like I, i don't know him but he seems a bit like a fucking goofball to me but um you know you you like him and he's probably cool i don't know him but the MP5, there's not a single thing the MP5 SD does as good as a honey badger. Not one single thing, except the ammo is cheaper than 300 blackout. That's the only, only thing. Yeah. Um, and well, so and, that's, and that's even kind of weighted a little differently because yeah, I remember uh, talking to police departments when I was at Silencer Co., and they were using, you know, SDs and didn't have the right ammo, so they'd stitch up a guy and have to put a mag into him, and the guy is still blinking because they, they weren't using expanding subsonic rounds. They were using whatever their duty pistol had, and the gun would slow it down, and the bullet wouldn't expand. It would just punch holes, and so there's kind of a misnomer there. If, you have to, if you're trying to get the right ammo for that gun to make it effective, it's expensive 9mm ammo relative to, like, yeah, the... 300 blackouts more expensive for sure, but to get the benefits of what you're actually getting, I'd rather pay an extra 40 cents, 50 cents around if my life counted on it, than oh, of course, have, and have all the benefits than being like, well, yeah, ammo sucks, you know, it's expensive. Yeah, I mean, I think that's when well, he ended up when he and I kind of got into it on social media. I tagged him in a picture. Uh, with an MP5 SD and the Honey Badger, like on a scale or something, showing the weight, you know, like three pound weight difference or three and a half pounds. Yeah. And he came back and, like, made some comment about, I don't know, maybe it was about me being bald and owning, you know, and doing a t shirt company, not a real gun company. Which, you know, it's funny to me because, okay, like, that's pretty funny. Like, you make HK. Even your logo was copied from H and K, and like, why are you so passionate about it? You didn't design the gun. Like, your name's not Heckler or Coke. But it's like, okay, I'll entertain that. Name one thing the gun does better. Like the the Honey Badger is more accurate. The Honey Badger is quieter. The Honey Badger you can shoot without the silencer. You can shoot super subsonic. 
um, you know, the weight difference, all these different things. And, you know, we just ended up, like, talking a bunch of high school smack, which to me doesn't frustrate me. To me, that's just hilarious because, like, yeah. you're showing everyone that what I said was true. So I ended up, like, deleting it all. Um, but I don't know why people get so mad. But to me, it, it's sort of like if I post a, a picture of a, a Silencer Co. Omega, like, launching downrange. Yeah, that's me kind of being an asshole. But it's also – the consumer shouldn't get mad, but I think it's an emotional reaction when people own, like, silencer co-silencers. Okay, there's a bunch of, you know, in, in most categories of silencers, they're very mediocre. Very mediocre. Yeah. Um, but people get passionate about it and defend it, and they don't let logic or science or, or sort of dictate any of that. And um, that that's funny to me, and that's where... I view it kind of as a as a disservice, um, you know. And, and to me, the, the Dakota Tactical guy, from everything I've heard, the guns are super nice. I, I don't have one of his. I wouldn't be opposed. I mean, you know, I don't care. It's kind of like I'll go see movies of actors who, you know, are liberal and you know make political statements and all. And I think they're stupid, and I can't stand it. But you know, sure. I, I didn't. I, I love movies. And if someone's a great actor, but they're an idiot in their personal life, you know, I'm just not going to get that deep in it. And I feel the same way with people with guns. Um, you know, I've made tons of mistakes with things that we've done. But, you, you know, when science is staring you in the face, I mean, the guy could say, hey, I make nice commercial guns that are, you know, reproductions of these, you know, legendary guns. Because I've never said anything other than that. It's just not a current weapon. It's a classic. Yeah. But, you know what? Uh, it's fun. Like, I, the gun industry is fully like that. I remember, you know, I have a certain preference in pistol, and and I have a giant hand, and so there's, like, certain guns fit my hand better than others. And I remember people just being like, you're stupid. You should just have a Glock. <laughs> I was like, well, I like Glocks. And they run awesome, and I have nothing against it other than the fact that if I shoot one at a range for a long time, I'm going to, my hand will bleed. Like, I have slide bite all the time from it. I own a couple Glocks. Awesome. Like, but those aren't my go-tos. There's other guns that fit my hand better. And, I like, people are so passionate about it that they'll, they're willing to tell me I'm stupid and my kids are ugly and my dog sucks because <laughs> yeah. I, chose, I chose a SIG P320 or a whatever, like a HK USP or whatever. And they're like, no, you're an idiot. Like, this is not how you – and they forget that there's consumer preference. And yeah. there's, there's certain reasons why people like certain things. And uh, I don't know. It's always funny to me because the gun industry is super bad about that. Like, all they, all they want to do is tell you, here's the box you have to live in. And, you know, you can't, you can't go outside this because – I don't believe that, and so because I don't yeah, believe it, you shouldn't I, believe it either. Well, yeah, Glock owners, and and I love Glock, and but you know, I I don't carry a handgun. Like, I, why would I carry a handgun in my truck when I could carry a honey badger? Like, I, yeah. I ain't trying to get a pistol fight, some duel with somebody. But um, you know, it's like 1911 owners. Like, I own a bunch of 1911s, and I love them, but. People who were still diehard as far as a carry gun and stuff like that, like, no way in hell 
Like, I have spent tons of money on 1911s. There is no way in hell I would carry a 1911. In my experience, and I've done a lot of shooting, it's like reliability and things like this. It's like it just doesn't compare to a SIG 220, for instance, um, that was designed way later and is, is made now. Like the hand fitting that it takes, you know, just to make a 1911 run is good. Um, and it's still never going to be as reliable. You know, and even John Browning, like people are so, I mean, you know, with pistols, 1911 people are insane. But even John Browning said he made like a bunch of mistakes in it and he corrected a bunch of them in the high power. So like, okay. Yeah. And imagine if he had today's, like when you talked about the MP5 and your 10 millimeter gun. Um, you know, engineering, you know, knowledge of metallurgy alloys available, you know, modern machining, like all these things. Like, imagine what you think John Browning would have designed the 1911 today, like no way in hell. Um, yeah. you know, he, he was, he was governed by, you know, the equipment and the science of the day, really. Um, so, but, you know, good on him. I mean, look at the Browning designs that are still popular today over a hundred years later. You know, the M2 still being in service, the 1911. Um, you know, just, just so many iconic guns he did. And it was really wonderful to me to see him transcend, you know, he did a rimfire um, rifle, you know, a twenty two rifle still produced today. Uh, shotguns, one of the most popular shotguns in the history of uh, uh, firearms. Um, you know, belt-fed machine guns, handguns, like what a stud. But, um, yeah, you know, and you're not going to do that without realizing you've made mistakes in the past. So when people get passionate about it, I don't know, it's kind of like Ford or Chevy. You know, my father retired from General Motors. And, like, I don't give it. I mean, that's really cool, but I don't owe General Motors the rest of my life. You know, my my father worked there and, um, you know, earned a fair wage, was able to support his family. That's it. If Chevrolet wants my money today, like, they better build a better truck than a Ford. Like, I don't give a shit if it's a Ford or a Chevy or a Dodge or or, or whatever. And I think the same thing yeah. with guns. Guns and ammo and whatever else. You know, I still buy custom 1911s and still buy custom Remington 700 based guns. And I appreciate the work that goes into them, but that doesn't mean like it competes like with our new rifle, the fix. Um, yeah. But that's it. I mean, everybody, yeah. It, it's funny the ability, especially with social media, to get under people's skin. And if they saw, you know, like my, my vault. And, you know, especially that the code of tactical guy, like the number of H&Ks that I have, <laughs> you know, like I, I yeah, really am a fan. Yeah. Um, that's always but, the funniest part is, you know, people just don't fully understand sometimes what the, the gist of comparisons are or, or whatnot. And it's not necessarily a personal thing. It's interesting because there's so much disingenuous marketing uh, but when you do a real comparison, like, and that's why the stuff, the stuff you do is, I think, is genius in its simplicity, which is put them both on a scale. I, I think one of my favorite ones, I don't remember which product was, was being compared, but you, like, piled on a bunch of guns on one scale to equal the weight of, like, a competitor's rifle. And I, it's just, it's funny because it's so simple. It's super easy to see the comparison you're trying to make. And then at the end of the day, it's these stuff people that are like, this is apples and oranges, or this is the <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, you have to see it for what it's worth, you know? Yeah, well, well, well thanks for the kind words. Yeah, the marketing stuff is, um, 
You know, it's tough. What I found with marketing is that I can say and do anything. You just better not lie. Um, yep. You know, and the people that, you know, when you're successful or you're perceived to be successful, I think, or you bring something new to market that maybe makes them insecure about something that they have an affection for, whether they're involved, they're a, an employee of the company, one of the owners, or they just bought the product. Um they just have a hard time accepting that it's not perfect um, or that yeah. there could be something better. Because, yeah, it's like when you bring up the Saker and the 762 SDM6, you know, for the time, we were doing so much R&D on silencers because Surefire was doing a great job and we had to beat them. And, and, you know, that's when we developed the Element Silencer. We developed the Tyrant 9, the Titan, the 762 SDM6. And to me, some of the greatest silencers for a decade and you know that I mean, wasn't honestly, done. I, I have I saw my STM six and I use it actually quite a bit at Noveski. Um, well, we developed our NSD rifle last year that was like the prototype had my STM six on it, and it was funny because we ended up like we would test it with a bunch of other silencers from everyone, and no one could if you didn't know what the can looked like or because it was tucked under a rail. You didn't know what it was. People had no clue that it was a can that has been out for a decade, right? I mean, just yeah. There was no. It, it is on par still with almost everything out there. Like probably eighty percent. And sure, there's like lighter weight versions or this or that. But like, if you're talking about pure sound and the way it runs the gun, it is on par with still what people consider yeah. the best of the best. Yeah, I would say it's probably in the top five still. Um, you know, I kind of have a different approach now with silencers, but, you know, the super heavy-duty stuff like that um, that we did for that, that was for a certain group who had a really short barrel 308 Pilato, and they needed something very durable. Um, but, you know, that the commercial market's grown so much, that's not really the approach I take now. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a great science, but we did so much R&D that I knew, because we tested everybody else's stuff, that we were way better than everyone else. And I would just say it, and people would get so offended, you know, people like Phil Dater or Josh Waldron or Jason Schauble once, you know, he left, or, or you, you know, whatever. And it's like, just shut the fuck up. If you want you want to compete, you got to do the work. There's no... At the end of the day, the marketing and all, you leave that in the office. So like, if we end up at a range, at a solicitation or a down select, you know, I'm going to shoot your stuff till I blow it up. Mine's still working. And, you know, just for me to say that has offended so many people. But we didn't get there because I'm the most brilliant guy. I'm probably, for a long time, was the most driven and competitive guy in silencers. And I'm also willing to risk and, you know, the whole put-up, shut-up attitude. Um, but, yeah, those silencers – are still really great. I mean, I don't know what Remington's doing with all that now, but, you know, that's when I'll say, for instance, that Staker was a huge piece of garbage. And I'll say it now, and I said it then. And, you know, you guys didn't release that video, but, you know, I, I could have, you know, when Jim Tech kind of challenged me a long time ago, maybe even 15 years ago, you know, I just put one of, the, uh, one of their G5s on a 416 and shot full auto and blew it up in, like, three mags or something. And, you know, yeah. we, we, we went through like 20 mags on ours 
um, you know, letting the you let the gun cool after so many mags, whatever the thing was, and we put it on, um, just put a video up, and that ended the whole thing. Um, you know, I did it with Surefire too. Maybe you remember those magazine ads? Oh yeah, they were kind of after me. Yeah, we were winning all the military contracts. So they they did some kind of big corporate, I thought, kind of shady bullshit. Um, you know, kind of putting the room around. We were going out of business and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I felt, you know, I was young and naive and felt very offended. So we just blew their silencers up and, uh, and posted pictures of it, you know, put it in a magazine ad. And, you know, yeah. they sued me. They sued me for that saying that it was photoshopped. So then I sent the attorneys, um, pictures of the stuff and they said we mechanically broke it and we sent, one of the blown up silencers to them. And then I got like five or six more and just did videos blowing them all up consecutively. And, you know, <laughs> they ended up, they ended up dropping the whole thing, but they sued me for $11 million for false advertising. Initially saying, uh, said that I photoshopped those ads and then said I mechanically broke them. And then I just did like whatever, five or six of them in a row. And it's like, well, I can post all these videos and stuff if you want, like you can sue me. But, you know, so we went to mediation. And, and they That's funny. Did you, didn't you do an ad with, like, a cross-section of one of their cans with waffle fries? Uh, yeah, that was in response after they dropped it. Like, it was, I forget what the ad was, but it seemed real funny at the time. But, yeah, we got a Chick-fil-A waffle fry. And, and um, <laughs> because it's like they dropped I don't remember the situation, but at mediation, they ended up dropping the whole thing. Um, and then, like, the attorney or one of the Surefire employees, like, smarted off to me and, like, kind of threatened me still. Like, you know, this is over, but if you pull some shit like this again, you know, one of these things. And, yeah. uh, you know, anybody that knows me knows, like, I'm not going to take that. Uh, and so I just laughed at him. And I remember, and Barry Duke, I like him. He was there. He's a very nice guy, but he was, like, crying. Um, uh, you know, and couldn't even talk, and his attorneys pulled him out of the room. So I was like, okay, fine. Well, I'll I'll, I'll poke at you guys one more time. So we came up with, yeah, comparing it to like a potato. That that was about the technology that they had. I mean, it was, yeah. So yeah, I, 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 I don't necessarily go that far today, but it's way easier with social media back then. It was, you know, printed media we had to put it in. Um, yeah, there's there's some commitment behind that for sure. Yeah, but the social media stuff, I mean, I think it is good. I think it's good. This is one good way for a reason for me to be in charge. I'm not really governed by anything. And I've made some mistakes with our social media, um, but I also try a lot of different things. And I think some of the things end up, you know, relating. Like you said, stacking up the guns on one scale and just the one gun on the other. Or the one that we did, I think, for even in response to that Dakota Tactical guy, was I put a honey badger, and then it was like 4,000 rounds of ammo equaled the price of one of his guns, you know, and that was like another yeah. comparison. Um, and it's just simple kind of visuals like that. But at any rate, man, well, thank you so much for the time. This went longer than I was anticipating, but it's good talking to you. Um, yeah, it was fun talking to you. Yeah, thanks for all the stories and insight and uh, yeah, I love the stuff Nevesky's doing and, and wish you guys luck and glad we're working together and, um, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, keep keep being weird, man. It makes the industry way more fun.
Oh, yeah, likewise. I really appreciate it, Kevin. Can't wait to get my hands on that mini fix. <laughs> Me too, my man. Me too. <laughs> have, have a good day. All right. Take care. All right. Goodbye.